So Money Episode 741, Pete Chapman, writer, producer, director. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Our guest today started making films in the 11th grade. Fast forward, he's a director on hit shows like Blackish, Grownish, and even Grey's Anatomy. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. You know, when we think of the film industry, we think big blockbusters, dazzling movie premieres. Who actually pays to create these movies? And how does a young up-and-coming filmmaker with no money actually break into the industry. We're in conversation with Pete Chapman on So Money today. Pete started making films in high school and through a lot of hustle and persistence. He raised half a million dollars for his first film. He had $1,000 of his own money in the bank at the time. And since then, he's gone on to direct well-known shows, including Blackish. Pete and I talk about how he got his start in the film industry, how he keeps his integrity in an industry that is full of compromise, the grit required to make it in the industry, and the financial realities of launching films. Here is Pete Chapman. Pete Chapman, welcome to So Money. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me on the show, Farnoosh. It's a pleasure to be here. You have a very smooth and bold voice. I'm not the first to tell you this. Uh, Maybe the second. The second. (laughs) You have a voice for radio, but your work is highly in film. And like so many people who are passionate and successful in what they do, your craft, your love for your craft started when you were young. Uh, In the 11th grade was when you um, produced your first sort of mini film. And when you look back on on your journey, what was it about film that drew you to this medium? I mean, you could have pursued a lot of things, I imagine, but you really, you kept with film and that was kind of a first love, it seemed. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I don't know if you can, if you can identify it early on when what attracts you to something. Um, but what I knew was when I took the filmmaking class and made my Super 8 films that uh, the language of filmmaking was intuitive to me, and I was doing things that my uh, instructor told me were like indicative of, of 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 knowing how to make a film. Even though there was a lot to learn, there were like there'd always be one or two little things where it was like, "Wow, that's a really good choice that you made there." Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of support compelled me and propelled me forward to think that I could accomplish it. Coupled with familial support and my own personal drive. Um, but I think that what I was attracted to was the opportunity to put forth images that would, I guess, kind of make my own experience real in a way on a larger platform. Because, I, you know, they say like uh, your whatever you see is becomes your reality. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so, like, if I could have a hand in getting uh, the perspectives of different characters than what we typically would see on film or TV um, out there for people to consider, 
then I felt that I'd be doing my job and adding something to the conversation. Yeah. And it sounds like you had a, a lot of encouragement, which goes a very long way when you're young and vulnerable and experimenting. It's You had people who were identifying your talents. I want to ask about the finances of filming and yeah. business of movies, but... Um, because I'm so curious about, I've had a few, by now, I mean, at this point, I've had a few directors and actors on the show. And I always want to know what the inspiration is for the types of narratives that they pursue. So, and you've done documentaries, you've done, you, you've done episodic work, you have films. So when you get, I'm sure you have a million ideas that are running through your head all the time, but when you get the idea for your next project, what in you says, this is a film first and foremost, and I need to do it. Great question. Uh, what, I, what I noticed, because oftentimes, like when I first started making the, the, the pilgrimages to Hollywood to have meetings, there was great confusion, um, you know, a decade ago about what I did. It's like, do you write? Do you produce? Do you direct? Which one? You can't possibly do all three. And you can't possibly do documentaries and narrative and music videos and all these things. And that's kind of changed. But um, what I worked to reverse engineer in looking at the things that I was attracted to, um, I found that it was always about the pursuit of the American dream and how who you are as a person or a character in a project affects that pursuit. So for instance, like my feature, my first feature that I did that I raised uh, half a million dollars for called premium. Um, that was about this struggling black actor trying to find his way and build a career while maintaining his integrity on the path to what he hoped would be success in Hollywood. And at the same time, it was about the most important person that you don't end up with and how you have this relationship that you kind of, you know, you run up to the 99, you run 99 yards, you get up to the one yard line, and then you kind of both recognize that you're not the one for each other. And it's not necessarily sad. It's kind of hopeful because without that experience, you wouldn't be prepared for whomever you end up with. Um, and so that character's pursuit of the American dream, his being uh, an actor, had a unique path because he was black. And then there's the documentary I did about black tankers in World War II, which could seem tangential and very different from anything I'd done before. But what I when I thought about it later, I recognized that you know, these gentlemen went to war fighting for rights that they didn't even have in America with the hope, assumption and belief that they would have those rights when they would get back home and they'd no longer be second class citizens. And I feel like even the a lot of the TV shows that I'm tending to get hired for now kind of share the same pursuit of the American dream anchor. I mean, I just binge watched Shameless in preparation for an interview uh, coming up and it's the same thing, you know, and they're not black. It's a, it's a family, the Gallagher family in Chicago, you know, with the patriarch who's an alcoholic and everybody's trying their best to make it happen with what little they have. And it's the same deal. I guess it's a bit of the underdog and it's a bit of like putting a lens on that pursuit. You mentioned Hollywood and we all have our thoughts about what it must be like to be, be you know, in, inside Hollywood and can, can feel sometimes that it's not the most accepting place. And I recently interviewed a female director 
uh, Kara Scoglin, who works on Handmaid's Tale, and and she's done amazing work. And she said that her way of, to, to your point, you know, keeping your integrity, one thing that's helped her navigate her career is to, as and she quote, I quote her, work with elegant people. And so I want to ask you, what's been your way of consciously trying to, I'm sure it's a conscious effort sometimes to like make sure that you're staying true to your craft, you're keeping your integrity. Right. Yeah. You know, that that's a very, it's, it's funny how, and I, I'm, I, I beat this horse <laughs> to death, but, um, cause like I even, I just gave a talk at UCLA this week and, and, and there's all these questions about like, how do you do it? And what's the, what should I do? Mm. And you know, what's the path? And I'm, and I, I, it sounds like BS, but you know, I, a few years back, I, I made a conscious effort to try and get back to what it was that excited me when I first picked up that camera in 11th grade and trying to reframe at least my own projects through that prism. So like when I made the short that, um, you know, I had done this feature that uh, we shot in 2005. Um, you know, it got distribution, limited theatrical distribution. It premiered on Showtime for cable. It was in Walmart on DVD, then on Netflix. Um, you know, then I kind of spent all this time trying to write things that I thought would sell, none of which did. And so um, I kind of got to this place where I was like, you know what? I got my production company. We're doing branded content. We're doing, you know, okay. Why don't I just go and make something for me that is a representation of my skill set today, telling stories that are of interest to me? If nothing else, I'll have a YouTube link that I can watch late at night and say, yeah, that's pretty good. And the irony is that that short film propelled my career forward more than anything I had done. And it was the most kind of selfish project that I had ever made. And so I think that it's about, you know, finding ways to either make projects of that nature for yourself or support people um, like, like, Kari said, work with people who are elegant, like support people who are making projects in that design, in that spirit, because then you're going to be working with folks who care about what they're doing um, and are looking for you to help elevate it. Mm -hmm. And it's all being done in the interest of something that's not Hollywood. Well, and you can really get behind it. So much so that to your point, this, you know, this short film that you worked on that you were so in love with that you probably went out there and talked endlessly about with such vigor and passion, like it got to the next level because you were just that much more behind it. Um, right. The movie Premium uh, was your first feature film and you raised half a million dollars for it. And this is I read when you had less than a thousand dollars in savings. So what did you do to convince people to give you money? <laughs> Well, you know, it, it was it was literally just about it was about selling. I'm trying. To, I'm always trying to figure out how to how to best distill what could be a long answer. But I, I think that with anything, and maybe this might best apply to your audience. I think like with anything, unless you're you're selling something that sells itself, then you are really selling people on you, and so. What I found was that 
the product was Pete Chapman, so to speak, and the project was premium. And so what I needed to do was to show folks that I had the ability to complete this project, the passion, and also the support. That was kind of like, you know, step one. Then it's like, and and this isn't like a, a totem pole. I think these things exist like on the same plane. Then it's like taking the same care and making the script as good as it can be and mastering the craft, surrounding yourself with people uh, who can help you elevate the project. Have you ever learned from your life as a producer and a director and a filmmaker, I'm sure there's a lot of budgeting that goes on with that. Have you been able to make parallels in how you budget for films and how you budget in your personal life? Oh yeah, most definitely. <laughs> I mean, for I'm, I'm, I'm the running joke uh, within the family is how I live off of a spreadsheet um, because there were a lot of lean years in um, the interim of, of raising money for films. And even, I mean, even after the film, I did not get rich off of my film, you know, like for, for the, for the six years spent, uh, raising money for it and producing it and then, you know, completing it, you know, I, I got, I paid myself $15,000. So you divide that by six, it's like, you know, ridiculous. Right. Um, so you need to, as an artist in my mind, um, and no, this is a universal thing. You need to live within, uh, your means if you want to be able to make decisions that are not guided by financial desperation. Right. So like, then you end up making, like, that's how you end up making films and doing TV shows that you hate, um, in my case. And so, um, you know, I would have a spreadsheet. I actually literally just updated the spreadsheet this week um, since my life's changed a little bit with all the TV shows I've been booking. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I calculate what are all the monthly things, but then also <clears throat> what do I, what do I forecast in, in, in saving? And I remember reading, I think it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and he talked about pay yourself first. So don't like, you know, do all your bills and then be like, I have $12 left. That's for me. Like, <laughs> you know, every month say I'm going to, and if I rewind back, you know, a decade or so more, it's like, I'm going to save $125 out of every check that is not getting touched. And then I'll pay my bills. You know what I mean? And changing your perspective around it. Um, while at the same time, you know, using said spreadsheet to really track everything because you begin to see how much money can slip through the cracks on things that you don't even recognize you bought, you know, like that. I mean, the classic thing is you go to Starbucks every day, you know, for a month and you're a couple hundred dollars lighter in your pocket. Yeah. And, what's you know, your biggest you, uh, sort of splurged? What's one thing that you have to consciously curb to avoid hmm. getting into that hole? That's interesting. I mean, <laughs> I've come to the place where I would rather spend more money on something quality than something that's inexpensive, but I'll be replacing it for my entire life. Um, so I've, you know, I've, I've got a watch that was not cheap at all. Um, but, <laughs> but it, uh, but I've had that watch for 13 years. I think you should call it a timepiece. 
Yes, my time piece. Thing. <laughs> uh, that you're going to pass on to the next generation. It's an investment. Oh my god, that's funny. And and so now you're working also with big networks, and I'm curious what it's like to negotiate now your sense of self worth and your your worth to uh, to these networks because before like you're raising your own money, you're paying yourself, but now you're actually asking for a salary. So how does that work? Well, so it, it's um, and and tell me if I'm getting too inside baseball. No, here. please. The more inside baseball, the better. We like it here. Okay, so it it it, it differs a bit between film and TV. Um, now, with TV being a writer's medium, um, you know, it, it's the writer creator of a show is two years in at a typically at a minimum before you ever see an episode of that show. And so by the time it's aired and they've made the pilot and they're looking for episodic directors, it's not about you as a director. You're just kind of there. And I'm not minimizing it, although it sounds like it, but you're there because they're making 24 episodes of this and they couldn't possibly do it all themselves. So while one episode's prepping, you know, the other one's shooting and it's just this kind of assembly line of production. And because of that, because it's not like, you know, you have to you don't have to hire Pete Chapman to get a quality episode of Blackish. Right. It, the writing's there. The actors know their lines. And so um, I could I, I make sure that episode might be better than someone else, but the show will go on. and so the way it works is there are set rates for directors in television. It's not a negotiable thing. Um, and so you just know like for an hour long show or a half hour long show, you get X amount and the amount differs based off of um, if it's basic cable, it's obviously going to be a little bit lower than broadcast. Um, broadcast is going to be higher because they have more commercials and advertising revenue to, to, um, dictate what those rates are. Um, a show like, I mean, you know, a show like, um, I don't know, like a, like a blackish may spend four to five million an episode, I'm assuming. Um, and then a show on cable might spend, you know, under two. Um, and so, uh, then when you get to cable premium cable, like HBO, um, it's, it's going to be dictated not by, um, not by broadcaster or um, basic cable, but by the pay cable scale is going to differ based off what the budget is. So if the budget's over X amount, you get this much as a director, but um, you, you, you're not negotiating that. Um, and so you'll see a lot of times that um, the, the, uh, the, the, the promised land for a director is to do pilots because when you do a pilot, which is basically the first episode of a show that gets produced and shot and presented to the network for them to decide whether or not they want to move forward with the show. Um, the, the pay is a lot higher on that for a director, almost three times higher. And you also will participate in, um, in the residuals of the show over the life of the show, because you had a hand in the design of the visuals of the show versus when you just come later down the line and you're, you're, uh, executing on a, on a, on a visual Bible, so to speak, that's already been cemented. That is a you lot know? of info and detail. We like that. That's, I mean, I didn't know that. I didn't know that pilots would necessarily earn you more than a show that's already, already in series and oh, yeah. interesting. Um, yeah. I guess that's good. Cause you know, if it's, it's, 
it's a lot of risk. You do all this work and it may not even air. So may, you may as well make a nice paycheck. Yeah, exactly. And you, and you're really making, you know, like, you know, like certain shows, every show is different. Some shows are shoot handheld, some shoot on uh, certain lenses, some have a different kind of pacing. But when I show up, like, uh, for instance, like I've already been booked for two episodes of Blackish. I'll, I'll be doing the second episode of season five. So I'll get the script. The sets are there. I know what it looks like. And I'm doing a lot as a director. Yes, but I'm working within the uh, kind of creative confines that not confines, but the creative uh, structure landscape of the show. Um, now, on feature films, that's a different thing. There are minimums there. Um but then you are able to obviously uh, uh, ask for more based off of the success of your prior work. Right. So to, you know, if you take like uh, M. Night Shyamalan, like he had made three films prior to The Sixth Sense. Um, oh. And after, and yeah, they nobody really knew that. But when that film, after that film got made, um, and was a huge success. His next film, he got five million for the script and five million to direct. Wow. So you get a bit of retroactive pay. <laughs> um, and so, you know, but you're going to make, yeah, you're not going to work as often. Um, you know, it, 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 the people end up on certain career paths. I still work to do everything from film to TV, to documentary, to branded and commercials. Um, but, you know, with every endeavor you're having to, um, people are thinking you only do one thing. Right. Yeah, they try to pigeonhole you. We haven't even really touched on your upbringing. We always talk to guests. I love talking to guests about their upbringing and the kind of the the financial fabric of your, of your childhood. And like yeah. our sponsor is Chase Slate and they did a really – incredible study about parents and family and money. And they discovered that over half of parents have had a conversation about money with their children, or at least they say they do. Um, So what was your experience learning about money as a kid? Who taught you the most and what was the biggest lesson? That is a great question. I, I feel like, well, let's see. I've always been like a pretty... I don't know, inquisitive person. Uh, I think what I, I remember I had an allowance and I would have to, um, if I ever wanted a raise in the allowance, (laughs) uh, I would have to submit, my mom made me submit it in writing as to why and how much. Um, and I appreciated that because it, it was getting a sense of things actually are negotiable, right? Like you don't have to just get what's take what's given to right. you. And I think that's a, a very important lesson. I had like a very small nominal fee that like my sister and I would be paid for grades. It was like five, it was like $10 for an A, $5 for a B, you know what I mean? And then nothing else. And like, to me, I was like, well, I'm going to get all those $10 payments that I can, you know? Um, and that was like an interesting incentivization um, and you could argue, oh, you should be getting good grades anyway. But if you're going to be supporting your kids, giving them money to go to movies anyway, like you might as well tie it to something. Add some, yeah. Add some gamification to it, you know? 
And it that triggered me more than it might have my sister. So the people respond differently to that. That's something that you learn too, right? Not everything is an incentive. One person's incentive is another person's like, yeah, whatever. I guess those were drivers. I mean, both my folks were, my parents were entrepreneurs, went to war in. Um, I think that is why I was able to have the support I did as an artist because it's not like we could look to Uncle Spielberg and know that this was a fair path. It kind of harkens back to what I was talking about earlier, like people seeing the passion, people seeing the dedication, because I was making films every weekend when I only had to make like two a quarter. Um, And I was reading all the books that the instructor had. And I was, I mean, I bought a VCR with the money I saved up so I could go to Blockbuster Video and watch a <laughs> hundred films, right? Like I remember Entertainment Weekly had um, the fifty great, it, the fifty greatest directors and their one hundred best films, and there would be one film that was like widely known and one that was more obscure. And I was like, well, I'm going to watch every single one of those, and I bought a VCR to do that. So I think. It was, you kept Blockbuster afloat there for a while. I kept them afloat for a good summer, you know. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't prolong or forecast their demise, but <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Well, let's before we let you go, let's do some so money fill in the blanks. Okay. All right. This is when I start a sentence, and then you just finish Uh-oh. the sentence with whatever comes to your mind. Okay. So if I won the lottery tomorrow, a hundred million, five hundred million, a billion dollars. The first thing I would do is pay off all my family's bills. Oh, that's very nice. Like pay off your like mortgage, the mortgage, all that stuff. Yeah, definitely. The one thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better it used to be that VCR, but now <laughs> it's. Wow. This is going to, this is going to sound crazy and, and whatever, but, But I'm I'm totally not doing what you're asking me also, (laughs) but it's new and I just got this uh, Range Rover and I love it. Oh, good. You're treating yourself. Yeah, I had to. Nice work. I I mean, in LA too, you're in Hollywood. So like your car is. Oh yeah. You just drive around and it's great. It has, I mean, it's like the phone, it's like a, a mobile computer. Whoa. My goodness. All right. When I splurge, like when you have a something that you just drop a lot of money on that you do more than once a year, because it's just kind of a personal mm-hmm. thing of yours. It is. What is it? Vacation. Yeah. Yeah. D- is it true? Like people who work in the film industry, I mean, you work a lot of months and then you kind of have a, a month or a season off. Is that how your schedule is right now? Yeah. I mean, it's like, if you're, you have guaranteed, um, like, I mean, it's, it's kind of different because like, like for actors, it's different, but for me, it could, it's actually, as far as episodic directing, it's an all year thing because like the broadcast stuff will go from July to late April. But, um, I mean, I did insecure over the summer or it's not even summer yet, is it? I, I, I did that this spring. Um, and then there are shows that'll be on cable or other like, um, basic cable or pay cable that shoot over the summer. So it, you kind of get a sense of like, okay, I'm not booked for this window. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Let's get out of town. I like it. When I donate, I like to give to blank because. Hmm. 
That's an interesting question. And maybe I need to do more, more, um, more charitable contributions because in all, in all honesty, you know, this has been, I moved out here in May and it's kind of been, uh, a bit of a, of a, of an explosion of a career, so to speak, that was unanticipated. So I've yet to get to that place where like now I'm doing that. I'm, 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 um, evolving into the, I guess, income that's beginning. Well, this sort of stuff takes, like, it takes research, right? It takes time and you want to be thoughtful about your giving. So you have still the rest of the year if you want to make a contribution this year. And so I like, thank you for being honest about that. Some people might just ramble off an answer and, you know, just because it sounds good to say that, but it may not be true. I don't think anyone on our show has ever lied. That's not what I'm saying, <laughs> but you know what I mean? And I would tell you, I could tell you the, the, the principles that I'd be looking for. It would be, it would be, uh, it would be somewhere that has direct, a direct connection and relationship um, and track record with whomever they are servicing. So, you know, not not organizations that are deciding what people need, but organizations that are working with folks to determine how to meet the needs they say they have. And my production company, in fact, like, you know, maybe now that I'm thinking about it, that's kind of some facet of what we've done. Like we have a lot of nonprofit clients because um, my my company does videos and branded content and, and just visual assets for for companies large and small. Um, and a lot of times we work with nonprofits and do things at a, at a lower cost because they don't have the, the ability to maybe meet our traditional budget, but we know how important it is for them to have, um, the assets they need to go raise more money. So like this company dress for success is one where they help women get back into the workforce by initially giving them something to wear on their first interview. Um, but then it transitions into uh, support services that help them uh, prepare for working in corporate America. Um, It would be something like that. That's great. Yeah, we love Dress for Success here. And last but not least, I'm Pete Chapman. I'm so money because... Hmm. I'm Pete Chapman. I'm so money because I'm dedicated, passionate, and will always find a way to reach the goal. Love it. Congratulations on all the whirlwind success you've experienced. And you're just in the early days and stages of what is a long, long career. I, I anticipate a Lifetime Achievement Award in your future. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And, and, and congrats to you. I mean, I, it's a great podcast and it's information that folks need to need to be around. Um, I didn't I didn't I thought this, but I didn't add it. Um, I think when you asked me about like what kind of financial stuff I may have heard or been been introduced to growing up. And the thing that I, I thought about was like how important that is to have the access to that information. And there are there are kids growing up now who it's it's dinner table conversation. So they don't even realize they're getting an education in something that's so vital. But I I often think about like if someone would have sat me down and really just basic like here's what it means to have a credit card and here's what it means when you swipe it or, or give them the number and buy that thing. Because, you know, at the time when I went to college, 
you went and bought your books from the bookstore at NYU and there were credit card applications in the bag. Yes. And so then I got my first credit card and I'm, I'm getting Chinese food because <laughs> I don't want to go to the, to the dining hall and, oh yeah, let's go do the spring break thing. And, you know, eight years after college, you're paying for that trip to Cancun that you did seven years ago. You oh know? my gosh. And, and so I feel like that kind of like being, being around that conversation, being able to have unfiltered and honest conversations about um, finances and money is, is very important. And so, um, what you're doing is a, is a great service and, and resource for people. Thank you. Well, we couldn't do it without conversations like yours. So, uh, same to you, Pete Chapman. Thank you again and have uh, a great week. Thank you. You can learn more about Pete Chapman and his projects by visiting PeteChapman.com. Pete is also on Twitter and Instagram at Pete Chapman. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. If you want to leave me a question for the Friday episodes, just a quick reminder, go to SoManyPodcasts.com and click on Ask Farnoosh. You can also follow me on Instagram and direct a message me there with your question. I try to shoot back an answer within the hour or, you know, within 24 hours, but pretty, pretty quickly. Maybe I have too much time on my hands. I don't know, but I'm really enjoying connecting with you all. Thanks for tuning in again. And I hope your day is so money. So money.